Number 195, Jeff has asked that we mark that. We're certainly delighted to do so. And certainly the singing is such a vital part of the service times that we come together. It is one of those approved aspects of worship, and oh, how sweet it must be for the songs of your heart and mine as expressed to reverberate in the very halls of heaven and to come before the ears of our Heavenly Father who so is excited to listen to the words that you and I speak. It is interesting that as we think about the aspect of our worship, we reflect upon the Word of God, we sing its anthems in the songs, we pray its messages in our prayers, and as we do so, it truly are times of uplifting beauty, times of encouragement. Oh, how sweet our services are that help us be charged for the week ahead to help us appreciate the service of our Heavenly Father. As you notice, we continue our reading through the Bible this year, and we've now come to the second Sunday in March in the year 2014. As we do that, you'll notice that tonight we continue a lesson that has been drawn from the book of Leviticus. We have been reading in Leviticus for the last several days now. And at this point, we are very much near the end of that book, quite frankly. But tonight, we come to the point of having read some 197 chapters of the Bible up to the end of the day yesterday. So if you've already read today's reading, you are at 200. As you think about the aspect of the reading of the Bible, this latter section in Leviticus has focused quite frankly and quite often upon the character of those Old Testament priests. There are times that those efforts seem a bit distant from you and me, but I would submit that all of us can learn so very much by appreciating the nature of the work of the priesthood and by bringing it home to us, if you'll allow me to borrow that phrase, and apply it to your life and mine as Christians today. As we do that, this bottom part of that slide sets before us one almost immediate thought. And it'll be one that will often be prompted to us throughout the course of the lesson tonight. It's safe to say that the priests were privileged in many ways. They were blessed in a variety of aspects in terms of what God allowed them to appreciate and the provisions that were theirs. But by the same token, we ought never to think that that life of the priest was one that was mere extravagance, luxury, a life of plushness, if you will. It really was a life of great demand and a life of obligation. Part of that is what Brother Matt read a moment ago from Leviticus 21. Tonight, as we look at verses 5 and 6 in particular, I might invite you to think with me about not only the statements that were made on that occasion, but the implications that have far-reaching principles that can be very meaningful even to you and to me today. To begin that, why don't we, as always... Cast the spotlight on the text itself first. As we do that, we might well begin as follows. Put yourself with me for just a moment into that traveling caravan of the children of Israel in the ancient long ago. We know from the numbers given to us in the book of Numbers that these numbered, this whole group of people, well over two million people. That alone suggests that there were a great many ongoing daily demands in fact, if you think about it from these numbers, the present-day population of the city of Chicago might well have been comparable to the number of people that we're dealing with. Think about the vastness then on a daily basis of their water and their food, the ongoing aspects of their religious life. All of that would not have been trivial. 
And yet we notice that God placed before them the unforgettable reality that there was an importance to religion and they were never, ever, ever to forget it. In fact, He selected one of the tribes of Israel, the Levites, and to them He gave the prerogative to, in fact, always set before Israel the officiations, the rites, and the privileges of the priesthood. He specifically chose Aaron and his descendants to be those individuals who would officiate at the tabernacle and later at the temple. He allowed them to not only enjoy the blessings from the people at large, but these people were those who shouldered a fair amount of obligation. You'll notice near the top, the middle portion of that slide, the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus set before us the sacrifices, the offerings, if you will, that these were to carry out. And we remember the names, things like the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the meal offering, as well as the peace offering. All of these had their details. They had the specifics by which they were to be offered, when they were to be offered, and the other matters that attached to them. The priests were allowed to take certain of those portions of animals and use them for themselves. In that sense, they were able to benefit from the offerings of the people. I might suggest, though, that as you think about those aspects, may we never forget those responsibilities that attached to those priests. You couldn't offer those offerings just any way you pleased. God specified, for instance, certain parts of the animal were to be removed Certain amounts of its blood were to be sprinkled in a certain way. Furthermore, the details about what was to be taken, God had detailed. The priests were given no liberty in any way to change that, modify it, or in fact, usurp authority over it in any way. Might we at least comment briefly? The priests then were individuals who had to take very seriously the job given to them. That seriousness in part allowed them to be taught. When a young boy of, the, again, the descendants of Aaron reached the age of 20 and thus reached near the time when he was privileged to serve in the capacity of a priest, he had to be schooled and educated and made ready so that he could carry out those duties in the way that God would find acceptable. It is still very intriguing, isn't it? to think about the later Old Testament and the simplicity with which certain individuals approach the priesthood. Aren't you and I utterly shocked when we read what Jeroboam did later in 1 Kings chapter 12 and what he and some of his descendants did later in 1 Kings 15 where we find him, you may recall, he appointed just anybody to the priesthood. Didn't have to be the sons of Aaron or not. And not only that, He gave them the liberty of doing that which God never approved. We will remember then so often the statements made relative to Jeroboam that He made Israel to sin. He was one, in fact, who so often brought them by virtue of what otherwise should have been lawful service to engage in that which was not approved. God was not pleased with such activities. Isn't it somewhat also intriguing as you come to some of those final comments. That does take us back to chapter 21 of Leviticus, verses 5 and 6. You and I have just commented about the seriousness and the integrity that should have been descriptive 
of the livelihood of these priests as they officiated. But may we never forget the thrust of these two verses. Let's read them again. Speaking of the priests, They shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy unto their God, and not profane the name of their God. For the offerings of the Lord made by fire, and the bread of their God they do offer. Therefore they shall be holy." We notice now that not only was their obligation relative to their times actually in the tabernacle, not only were their obligations relative to those times they were officiating in the temple, God here informed them, you have to be aware that really all the time the priests had a very high standard to which the God of heaven called them. Notice it even impacted the way they cut their hair. Here he says, again verse 5, They shall not make baldness upon their head. And beyond that, they, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard. So those men serving in the priesthood, it is true, they had to be a bit cautious about the way they shave their beard, the manner in which they cut their hair, because the reason that God gave here is, These serve in my capacity. They offer on the part of the people. And in so doing, they must set a standard, a standard of purity, a standard of integrity, and a standard that even included their appearance. You'll also notice in light of that, mention is made in verse 5 about cuttings in their flesh. Maybe it's fair to say. It would appear that the matter behind some of these comments in part was related to the way the heathen or pagan nations of that era engaged in their idolatrous worship. There were individuals in that ancient era who in their worship of various gods like Chemosh and Molech and others, they would cut their beards in a particular fashion and that identified them as a patron servant of that particular god. And by the way that they cut their hair, that could be utilized to identify them as individuals devoted to the service of particular gods, if you will. It almost certainly seems that then one of the reasons as to God giving a prescription like this, these priests are dedicated to my service. They must give no allegiance to these false gods by what they wear, by the way they cut their hair, by the way their facial hairs are expressed. Those will not do. They're dedicated to my service. Maybe in light of that, though, isn't it a bit intriguing that the common way that they lived their life was to be an open testimony and an open witness to the God of heaven. It was to be an artifact of the one who called them and occupied in them a placement of this priesthood. The priesthood was extraordinarily unique and special. It might be fair to say that many of those foreign heathen peoples, they had their priesthoods as well. There were priests in Egypt. There were priests among the Canaanite peoples, but those priesthoods were nothing like the priesthood that God officiated over. The priesthood here was regulated entirely by the God and laws of heaven, and as so doing, these people appreciated that the glory did not rest with them. It rested with God who officiated over all of it, And they were called to direct the people's attention to none other than the great God of heaven. 
That's one of the great travesties then of what Aaron had done. When he, in fact, officiated over the golden calf, here he was, the principal one who had already been selected by God to serve as high priest, and yet he had a hand in encouraging their idolatry. May it never be so considered. And yet that's what Aaron had done. Here we find these statements reminding the priests of that day to take so seriously their charge. He goes on to say in verse number 6, They shall be holy. Make no mistake about it. If they are to be my servant and call the people to proper worship of me, they must be holy. There is no room for unholiness. There is no room for that which might put stumbling blocks in righteousness in the lives of those who are supposed to be called unto me. These priests, then we notice in verse 6, they were not to profane the name of God. That word profane means to tarnish, to mar, to cause to be vilified. These priests were never to conduct themselves by way of behavior or anything else in any way that profaned the God they were supposed to be serving. Isn't it interesting that in verse 6, for the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God they do offer. These were the very people to whom the children of Israel were to come. And when they did, bringing their animal to be sacrificed or bringing their other particular matter to be offered, the priest was supposed to set a standard of righteousness that the people could feel comfortable in serving as an individual to bring them closer to God. Consider how very troubling it would be if you were in that particular ancient time and you brought your animal, a sheep, a goat, a turtle dove, whatever it was on that occasion that you had brought. And as you did so, you brought it to one and you knew that his character was not as it ought to be. You had yourself seen him doing things that ought not be done. You had yourself seen him engaged in activity that was unwholesome, unsound, and sinful. How comfortable would you have been knowing He was offering your sacrifice for you? Needless to say, it would have been a very disturbing matter, wouldn't it? He's the one and the only one God has approved. And if I can't trust Him, if I cannot feel comfortable with Him, then you'll notice that great problem with the priesthood ultimately would redound unto the coming of a priesthood better than that one. Maybe in light of the closing thoughts on that slide, why don't we prepare for the next by giving interesting appreciation that these priests actually were given in Deuteronomy 33 another aspect of effort. Sometimes, although we have mentioned it in passing, may we never lose sight of the fact that in Deuteronomy 33 beginning in verse 8, as Moses gave some comments and statements very near the time of his own death, I might add, but as he made these statements and he addressed the tribe of Levi, he specifically said to them, you are given by God the privilege and, yea, even the duty of being teachers in Israel. They were supposed to understand the law of God. They were supposed to present it, and they were supposed to help the people recognize and realize that which God would have them to know. May I again say, wouldn't it have been disturbing to sit in the audience and know the gentleman preaching to you 
He's not keeping the very law he's preaching about. His life does not mirror very impressively at all the statements of what he is affirming. If you knew that his life, in fact, hadn't been wholesomely in accordance to the will, wouldn't it have been a hard matter to sit there and place confidence in what he had to say? Doesn't that somewhat speak about that which will befall the priesthood later in 1 Samuel chapter 3? On that occasion, when we study chapters 2 and 3 of that book, and we read about the very sons of Eli, and we remember what rascals they were. They took advantage of the people. They committed fornication with the women when they brought things for themselves to offer. And yet, they had the nerve to serve in the priesthood. That's exactly what happened. Wouldn't that have been very troubling? No wonder God looked with such disdain on the efforts of the sons of Levi, or rather the sons of Eli. Isn't it true then as we complete those matters, it brings us to challenge ourselves in ways like these. For you see, these priests of whom we've spoken point us directly to that which comes many books later. The 27 books of the New Testament. I would ask you for the next few moments to think with me about the priesthood in the New Testament era. Let's not think about those priests in the days of Aaron, in the days of Moses, and in the days of Samuel, or even David. But what about the priests today? I realize there are individuals in this world who label themselves as some high official, and they will use the word priest sometimes in the attributes of their title. I'm not talking about any of those individuals. Let us discuss the way the New Testament discusses the priesthood. Because you see, it does, and it does so at great length. And as we learn about these priests, I might ask, of course, it's going to be you and me. And as we think about them, what about your priesthood and mine? What duties, what responsibilities, what obligations rest with you and with me? As you begin with me reading in the First Peter chapter 2, I would invite you to read with me two verses from that chapter if you would. And then let's devote a significant point of consideration to them. 1 Peter chapter 2, first of all, verse 5 of that chapter. To set the context somewhat briefly, Peter, in the midst of this book that so often deals with suffering and trials and difficulties, he addresses these comments near the beginning of chapter 2, insisting on spiritual growth. Doesn't he say in verses 1 and 2 that we ought to, in fact, desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby? And then, as he discusses the details of that growth, of course, the one that prompts it is Jesus the Christ, and He is that chief cornerstone. But then these amazing words are found. Ye also, verse 5, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. After discussing the Lord Jesus Christ and again the greatness of His foundation, He then says, You also, verse 5, as lively stones. You and I then as Christians are living stones. That word lively really in the original Greek means living we are living stones. That is to say, we are not some dead, ancient, archaic letter. 
we are every bit living as proper characteristics in the precious body of Christ. But not only that, he says we are built up a spiritual house. Those stones aren't lifeless. You and I as living stones comprise a spiritual house. We each know that in the operation of constructing a building, proper foundation is laid and then the structure is built on it. Wood, stones, other matters are utilized. You and I as Christians are built up a spiritual house, but then he says, and holy priesthood. That house that you and I so often recollect from the Old Testament, the tabernacle, its details of construction were set forth. And we remember in Exodus 40, all of it was done exactly according to the pattern. We now observe here as Christians, we are built up a holy priesthood. That word holy signifies that we're consecrated to God, we're dedicated to His cause, and we officiate in the ways that He has set forth. And that notion of priesthood, doesn't it indicate that you and I do have obligations and duties relative to carrying out our livelihood as Christians? That holy priesthood, he goes on to say, is such that we offer up spiritual sacrifices. Those priests of the Old Testament, they offered their sheep, their goats, their turtle doves, and yea, the other animals that might well be brought to them. You and I offer up spiritual sacrifices. Doesn't that remind us a bit of Paul's famous refrain in Romans 12? When there he comments so interestingly that you and I offer up that which is of our body as a spiritual sacrifice unto Him, moment by moment and day by day. That verse, verse number 5 in 1 Peter chapter 2, closes with these words, acceptable. Those priests of the Old Testament, remember, they had to offer in a way that was acceptable if they were doing things correctly. Today, you and I must offer in such a way that God will accept it. He won't accept just any and everything. He won't accept it offered in any and just every way. That's why emotion cannot be our sole guide. It must be in truth, John 4, 24. Isn't it also somewhat fascinating that four verses later, Peter continues this exposition. In verse 9, again of 1 Peter 2, he says, But ye are a chosen generation. I would submit that after reading 1 Peter 2, none of us should ever again even ponder the thought that God doesn't love us and that He doesn't consider us extraordinarily special. Look at what you've been called already. Verse 5, living stones, a spiritual priesthood, a spiritual house. And now in verse number 9, a chosen generation. The God of heaven from ancient times past and even since the foundation of the world was laid, Ephesians 1 verse 4, made a determination that those who come to Him through His Son would be saved. That offering has been extended. You and I, as those that have accepted the invitation, are called a chosen generation. Furthermore, we're called a royal priesthood. That word royal, back of that in the original language, means of kingly character. You and I are of kingly character. Isn't that grand? May we again appreciate that as Christians in the church, these are descriptive of you and me. 
He isn't talking about the literal sons of Aaron anymore. He isn't talking about the literal sons of Levi. He's talking about you and I as the blood-bought body of Christ. You and I are the royal priesthood. He goes on in that verse to say that we also are a peculiar people. Sometimes it may well be that the word peculiar has been used in ways that had not always the best connotation. Maybe being called peculiar was in a way an insult. At least I well recollect in high school there were folks that would use the word that way. But may we be quick to say in light of the New Testament, being called peculiar from a religious standpoint is a great compliment. It's a fine commendation, isn't it? Because being peculiar means literally we are an individual possessed by God. He owns us. We're dictated and directed by Him. And as we're guided by Him, we're peculiar. He goes on in verse 9 to say, "...that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." You see, as Christians, we're very special in that regard, aren't we? All of those descriptions I've tried to write again on that particular slide. As you continue along with it, however, you'll notice how fantastic, how phenomenal is the description of this current priesthood. Do you and I think of ourselves as priests very often? Maybe we don't think about ourselves often enough in that regard. We know the New Testament teaches this, but what does this mean? To say that I and you officiate our New Testament priests serving beneath the high priest Jesus Christ our Lord. Hebrews 8 verse 1. What does that say about your activities and mine? Well, maybe among other things, it begins to point us in this direction. You realize with me that we are so easily reminded that those priests offered sacrifices and you and I also are put in position that we can offer things unto God. For instance, in Hebrews 4.16, you and I are admonished in words that are so very moving and compelling like this. Let us therefore come bold into the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and find mercy to help in every time of need. We have the opportunity to offer unto God and to rest assured that He will hear those prayers, the heartfelt thanksgivings as well as the heartfelt petitions that we would wish to offer. Keep in mind the world cannot feel that because God hasn't promised to hear the prayers of the wicked. He hadn't promised to hear the prayers of the sinful. In fact, doesn't it say in John 9, 31, God hadn't promised to hear the prayers of those who are not His own. You and I can rest assured, on the other hand, that in 1 Peter 3, 12, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And in that particular location, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. He did say righteous. God's ears are attuned to your prayers and mine. The world doesn't have that promise. The individuals living apart from the blessings of God have not that blessing. You and I do. Isn't it rather fascinating in light of that, that this statement in Hebrews 7.25 points us again to that constant offering you and I can make as we approach God through Jesus. For we are called through Him 
and we are moved in that direction because He is the one who can save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. It may well be in light of that that the attributes of your service and mine as priests go even beyond that to that final statement. You notice that the numbers in Numbers chapters 1, 2, and 3 bring us to recognize that the priests numbered sizable in terms of the actual number of individuals serving. But consider what that says about us. In Leviticus 21.6, remember, they were told to watch the way they cut their hair, to watch the kind of presentation they made before others. Isn't it true that those things also impact us as well? This particular slide, doesn't it remind us? Doesn't the New Testament encourage us to never forget that we always are setting example before others? They are watching what we say, what we do, how it's done. And they would be so quick to jump quickly upon the features that are not in harmony with the Bible. Look at what he did. Did you see what she did? And yet she claims to be a Christian. He claims to be a member of that church up there at Pippin. Isn't it true that some of the greatest hindrances toward others and toward their feelings toward the truth might often be the failure of example that you and I do not see it? Notice some of these statements somewhat quickly. Does God ask us to think very carefully about our appearance? I shouldn't be wearing a t-shirt that has some slogan on it that's godless in its character. I shouldn't be in some way advertising or parading for the devil. I'm not the servant of the devil, or at least so I claim. Do then I wear clothing that suggests his way of life, that suggests that which he would encourage isn't it interesting that there are times that even those that might be sons or daughters of a high-ranking person or a well-respected person in the church, the slogan across the T-shirt is not only disgusting, it's wholly inappropriate. You and I must recognize we are speaking all the time in the way that we present ourselves whether or not we are a servant to the Master. And that appearance does mean something. In fact, that appearance perhaps is highlighted in verses like 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. That last verse of that chapter, wasn't it Paul on that occasion? To that church in Corinth that said, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. Your body is included in addition to the spirit. The presentation that you and I make, the way in which we present ourselves by virtue of behavior, says and speaks volumes about the ultimate stature and nature of our heart. If my heart is right with the Lord, I'll sure not encourage the way of the devil by the way that I live my life in terms of the clothing, by in terms of even the other aspects of my appearance. It even has something to say about the nature of one's hair, doesn't it? Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 that doesn't even nature itself teach you that a man that has hair too long, you'll notice there he says, it teaches you that not only is that inappropriate, it is that which is shameful. You and I can then appreciate we must watch even this because we daily are serving beneath a priesthood far better than that priesthood of Leviticus 21. 
our priesthood is not based on dead, lifeless animals. It's based on the great sacrifice of Jesus. You'll notice that priesthood also attaches the fact that you and I are termed in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 20, ambassadors. That's a very interesting term, isn't it? You know here in America that we frequently employ ambassadors all around this world. We have ambassadors in most all countries. There are only a few exceptions. There are individuals there then that serve on the behalf of the United States government. They try to do so to uphold the status and cause of what America holds dear. They're ambassadors. They speak for us. God says you and I are His ambassadors. That word ambassador means representative. It means one that officiates on behalf of another. You and I are called God's ambassadors. And in that way, the closing verses of 2 Corinthians 5 constantly remind us of the obligation that rests in light of that statement. I would simply ask you to think of it this way. One of the meanings of that word is the word envoy. You and I, again, are, are individuals, New Testament Christians, and what fine ambassadors we're supposed to be, upholding the cause of the one whom we are serving beneath, namely Christ. We uphold the banner of His gospel, the banner of His livelihood, the character of His body, the church. And we do so, of course, with the opportunity of pleasure and privilege that He has given us. Isn't it interesting, too, beyond that, you notice... That, that statement of example is highlighted very carefully in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. As you think about that verse, I would say that here Paul was writing to that one who would be a preacher, and so all of us who attempt to preach, we know the obligation that rests upon us, for just as surely as one would not have any interest in listening to an Old Testament priest who... Obviously, his life didn't match what he was trying to teach. So today, you ought to have little satisfaction in listening to a gentleman preach and his life does not match what's found in this book. He, and yea, all of us, remember we're all priests, we all ought to strive to mimic the grandeur of this gospel in our lives. Paul wrote to Timothy, "'Be thou an example of the believers.'" in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in spirit, in purity. A six-fold character was set before Timothy. And one by one, you can see they touch every aspect of life. Notice the word conversation means your, your livelihood, your behavior, your conduct. And that applies just as surely tomorrow as it does today. You'll notice in that is included the aspect of spirit. What is it that excites you and makes you passionate? Are you excited to be a Christian? Do others see it in your face? Are they delighted to see that which beams through you as you speak about that which is dearest to you? Might we also observe the last element in that list was purity. We live at an age today when by and large purity is not looked upon as it once was. That's a shame in many ways, but it doesn't change the fact that the New Testament speaks of it. Didn't Paul say again to Timothy in this same book, chapter 5, verse 22, Keep thyself pure? 
that speaks to young people just as surely as it does us who are older. Keep thyself pure in the various avenues of life. Keep yourself pure. That purity perhaps leads us finally to understand as we come near the close of our considerations, taking us back really to one statement from this morning. We listed a number of matters about salt. We listed its taste. We made comment about the nature of its antiseptic properties, its preservative properties. We spoke about the way that it characterizes its chemistry. One thought that I thought best to save to tonight's lesson was this one. One other feature about salt is its color. It's white, the color of purity. You and I, we're told, remember, have this salt in yourselves. Again, Jesus stated in Mark 9, verses 49 and 50. As you and I think about that, we ought to then be people who are white. Individuals who exhibit purity on every hand and do so not because we won't wish the glory for ourselves, but because we know that's how God wishes us to be. A people who uphold purity in speech and purity in thought and purity in language and purity in livelihood, purity in conduct. When others of the world then look upon me and look upon you, may I ask, and may we each be very honest, what kind of priesthood do they see in you and in me? Do they see a person pretending to be a priest or one who's really a New Testament priest? One whose life does mimic the purity we've read about tonight. And one whose life does, in its very character, direct all the attention to the one who deserves the glory. Those Old Testament priests didn't take the glory for themselves, if they were correct at least. They recognized they officiated before the one. God's the one that got the sacrifices. They were offered to Him. And God allowed the priest to keep some of them for themselves. Do you and I then officiate as we should, as we ought, as we must? It is true as we come near the close of this lesson, what a great incentive that priesthood ought to be to us and for us. The invitation is that we're about to offer begs of us the personal question. And the gospel is in many ways a matter that preys upon the heart of each of us individually. How is your priesthood tonight? Are you safe within the confines of the body of Christ and serving as an appropriate priest day by day? Are you directing the sacrifices unto God as you all? Romans 12 verse 2. Or is your priesthood a rather shameful one, disgraceful one, inappropriate one, and one clouded with in fact the nature of the sinfulness that the devil would encourage? If it is that latter lot, please with urgency think about your condition. Christ Jesus wants you serving beneath His leadership as a priest in the New Testament era. The gospel. If you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins, you haven't yet entered into that gospel. You are not yet a priest. You are not one officiating in the characteristic of the priesthood. You are not a royal member of that body. You're not a chosen generation. You're not one of whom we had read in 1 Peter 2.5. Tonight, why not make that right? We had the privilege of witnessing a baptism just a couple of weeks ago and how delightful it always is to see a precious one rise from that watery grave of baptism. Sins washed away, a member now, having been added there by Jesus Himself. Acts 2.47 If tonight we could be of assistance to anyone in rededication of your life to being a faithful priest, 
why not make the proper changes tonight? Allow us to pray with you. If though you've never yet been baptized, the plan of salvation demands that you take these steps. Jesus said you need to believe Him to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. He said you must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. He said you must confess His name as the Son of God, as commanded again in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then you must be immersed for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. Tonight, why not do that this very night? so that the ninth day of March 2014 could truly be a day for all eternity in a positive way for your priesthood. If tonight you need to come forward, why not do it while together we stand and while we sing?